So today's passage is from the book of Amos on page 918 in the Church Bibles, and it's the whole of chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Basham on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not to return to me declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. And yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick, snatched from the fire, Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness, and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand a verse from another of the Psalms, and then I will pray for us. I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Heavenly Father, so humble us by your exalted word that we may abandon ourselves entirely to your love and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Grant us true repentance and your Holy Spirit that we may return to you with our whole heart and so be prepared for the day of your choosing when we shall meet you as our judge. Amen. Amen. I'll do please be seated. I 
I would like you to come with me in your mind's eye to a gathering of genteel, well-heeled, very religious women gathering in some northern ladies' fellowship. As they put their speaker's program together, someone had suggested, was it Naomi, that absolutely everyone was talking about this new preacher from the south. They should invite him. Someone objected that perhaps he wasn't our sort of person. I mean, he was a southerner. And there were rumors that he was quite challenging to listen to. But Naomi, yes, it it was her. She said she was sure he would bring them something of interest. He was just as respectably religious as they were, she assured them. And when she said that he was also a successful man of business, quite in their social league, well, that was it. They made the booking. He arrived at their well-appointed meeting place. They enjoyed some splendid cake and they took their seats in their comfortable chairs. He stood at the podium and began his message. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. Well, Amos doesn't tell us how the fine ladies of Samaria responded to his sermon that afternoon, but I'm guessing he probably didn't get an invitation to come back, and that the after-meeting chatter, normally such a delight of visiting any ladies' fellowship, was rather frosty on that occasion. I have a list of places that have only ever invited me to speak once, I think Amos's list would have been rather longer even than mine. Now we're back with Amos, and it's not a comfortable message, is it? Or at least it won't be if we in any way reflect the same spiritual state as those women of Samaria. Now let me say one thing right at the start of this message. Uh, Ladies, please don't bristle too much. And men don't relax for one moment. In chapter 6, the men are similarly excoriated. That chapter begins like this. Woe to you who are complacent, you notable men of the foremost nation. I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. Amos is an equal opportunities prophet. None of us can be complacent as he brings us the word of God. Why not? Why does it matter? Why should we listen to a passage and a sermon upon it like this uh, if it's going to be so painfully uncomfortable? And it is, and it should be. Why should we bother? I'll look down if you've got the passage open, and I would uh, encourage you to do so to verse 12 or to halfway through that verse. Uh, Historically, these words were addressed, uh, as you'll know if you've been with us over recent weeks, uh, to the northern breakaway kingdom of Israel in Samaria. But by the Holy Spirit of God, they're addressed to you this morning. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. 
He who forms the mountains creates the winds and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns the dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Are you ready to meet your God? He might come or call today. In what spiritual state would he find you? Amos may seem to us rather too close to the caricature of an Old Testament prophet with his fierce warnings. But he brings us the word of our God, of our creator and our judge. Meeting with the God whose message Amos brings is the one inevitable reality in all of our futures. Are you prepared for that day when you will meet Amos's God? Amos will help us to be ready for that meeting. His words seem harsh to us, but his purpose is like that of the coach who pushes and pushes his team in training, conscious that the big match is coming and softness in training will lead to disaster at the great confrontation. So it is with us and our holy God. Softness now, we love to hear it, but it will not help us when it comes to the confrontation with our holy God and judge. That is the reality for us, spiritual. I'll be honest with you, I don't think Amos 4 is my favourite passage in the Bible, but I need to hear it, and I need to heed it, and so do you, for there is no other way to be ready for that day when we shall meet with our God. It is from sheer kindness that the Lord has made, uh, who made us and against whom we have rebelled, has indeed revealed his thoughts to man, as we hear there in verse 13. In this case, the prophet Amos. He speaks that we might listen, and we listen that we might return to the Lord from our sins and discover afresh, or for the first time today, his mercy and his grace, his love and his acceptance in Jesus Christ. What is it then that characterizes the women and the men of Samaria that brings them to the teetering brink of hell? It is, in a word, self. They are self-indulgent. Their religion is self-made. And in their daily activities, they are utterly self-reliant. For them, it's all about me. My happiness, my desires, my choices, my needs, my interests, my agenda. In the language of the Lord Jesus, these are people who want to save their lives and to gain the whole world for themselves. But Jesus, to whom Amos points us, says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? That's how Jesus put it. But it's the message of Amos 4 as well. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want him to save us, if meeting our God on the last day is to mean our salvation and not our condemnation, then we are going to have to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. That's what he says. 
And in our natural state, we recoil against that absolutely. But it is truly the path to life. Amos helps us to understand something of what that means. So let's work through this passage confident that here is a word of life. If we will hear it and let it do its work and let God do his work in us through it. Let's see what we must do to be ready. First, verses 1 to 3, we must turn from self-indulgence. Amos actually is not being as rude to the women of Samaria as our culture would suggest, or at least not in the way that we might think. If a woman is called a cow in our culture, it's a hugely offensive insult, probably directed at her appearance or behavior. But the cows of Bashan were the sleekest and most highly regarded of all Israelite cattle. So Amos is not so much being vulgar as he is saying to these women, sleek and impressive as you are, you are so focused on indulging yourselves as to be little more than animals, for your whole life is geared to meeting your physical appetites. All that matters to them is the indulgence of their fleshly desires. The purpose of their husbands is merely to wait on them to refill the cocktail glass. It's an ugly picture of those who live simply for their pleasures, uh, who reduce other people in their lives, uh, simply to those who serve to enable their pleasures to be fulfilled. And so he calls them, uh, in this strikingly uh, offensive language, animals, because they might as well be such. They show no authentic humanity in their behavior. In particular, they care nothing for the poor and the needy. If the poor are oppressed and the needy are crushed, it is no matter to them as long as their glass is full and they have all they need to make them happy. All of this is so serious in God's sight that he swears an oath in verse 2 by his holiness. In other words, uh, to crush the needy without a thought at the very same time as indulging every whim of earthly desire is to set yourself up as the polar opposite, the mirror image of all that makes God who God is. Live like this, and your creator is your enemy, and the condemnation will surely follow, as we see in verses 2 and 3. So what does that mean for us? Should we rush home and empty our drinks cabinets and eat only salad from this point forward? I don't think so. The issue, as always in Scripture, is not on the outward behavior in itself, but what it reveals of what's going on in here in our hearts. You see, these women were neither thankful to the Lord for the food and drink he had provided, nor conscious of their duty as those who had been given much to be their brother's keeper and to be generous to those around them. They couldn't see either the Lord or or their fellow creatures because they couldn't see anything beyond their own desires and the need to fulfill their own appetites. The way to obey this passage is not really negative at all, as if clearing out everything enjoyable from the larder would change our hearts one bit. It just wouldn't. 
That outward change makes no difference to what is inside us. No, what we are called to is to turn our eyes away from ourselves and our desires, our needs, our wants, our pleasures, and lift them first to the Lord. As Paul says, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Uh, Ladies, if you're married, uh, to follow the example of this passage, uh, there is no crime in your husband bringing you a drink this evening. But will you thank the Lord for it and for him? Let's recreate a culture of thankfulness for all the good gifts that the Lord gives us. Can we do that? Can we teach it to our children? Pause often in your lives. Customarily, historically, we've done that at mealtimes. We call it grace. I hope at the very least you do that in your homes. Every meal, pause. Thank God for putting that food on your plate. And will you thank him as well for the good gifts of the clothes you wear, the houses you live in, the sex you enjoy with your husband or wife if you're married, all the pleasures of this world. God has given them to us. Let us honor him with thankfulness. Because, friends, if our eye goes first to him to thank him for all the good things he gives us to enjoy, then it will most certainly next move to our fellows as well, and especially to those who are in need. Do you realize that the very next person you have power to help who comes across your path, whether it's at home this afternoon or at school this week or wherever it is, in your workplace, in your social gathering, in the supermarket, wherever the next person comes who you have the power to help, that person has not appeared by accident. God has put that person in your path to test what is in your heart. However, at that moment, inconvenient and costly it might be to help them. How easily I hear myself saying, I'm sorry, not now, I'm too busy. Have you noticed, if you live in Hartford, uh, over the last few months, there's been a a big issue seller who's taken to uh, standing outside the co-op just one day uh, a week. Uh, How easily I have found it to simply avoid the eyes of that person as I go in to the co-op. What a shameful thing it is to stand here and admit that. But can you add your own examples? See, that's the direction of travel. We take our eyes from ourselves and our wants. We lift them to the Lord in thankfulness. And the next place they go, if they've been on him, is to everyone around us who we have the power to help and to make a difference to in their lives. John applies this for us. In his letter, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It's wonderful to be gathered here to celebrate the love of God in words and with tongue, but it means nothing if when we leave this place, It is not then followed through with love that is in action and in truth and practical mercy is shown by us who claim to know the love of God. To be ready for the Lord, we must turn from self-indulgence. Repentance means lifting our eyes and so pursuing thankfulness and practical kindness. Second, verses four and five, we must turn from uh, from self-made Religion. 
Amos uh, comes from the home, uh, the picture there with the drinks, uh, into the church, as it were, as he turns to the religious and spiritual life of Israel. And on the surface, things looked okay. In fact, they looked pretty impressive. An annual sacrifice was expected, but these people were bringing sacrifices every day. And tithes should indeed be brought every three years. But the end of verse 4, you'll see there's a footnote and some uh, unclarity about how to translate it. The end of verse 4 should probably be translated three days. Now, they're bringing their tithes every three days, not every three years. These people are impressively, zealously religious. And the places where they worship had impressive pedigrees too. Didn't Jacob meet God at Bethel? And wasn't Gilgal the custodian of the monument that reminded the people it was the Lord who brought them into the promised land? And that for all their pedigree and zeal, their religion was pointless. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Their religion was poison. And in the eyes of the Lord, It was as if they were committing the most outrageous of sins. So what was wrong with their spiritual life? And what does that teach us about what is wrong with ours? Listen to verse 5. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. Their religion was all about bragging and boasting and doing the things they enjoyed. They loved to do these things. They were full of pride for their spiritual achievements, not shame for their sins. Their goal when they did their religion was to satisfy themselves and to feel good about themselves spiritually, not to humbly submit themselves to the word of their creator and redeemer. Someone has said they were self-made men worshipping their maker. They might as well have been praying to themselves. Worse still, their system of worship rejected at its heart the word of God. The shrine at Bethel was set up after the division of Israel into two kingdoms and it centred on the idolatrous worship of a golden calf. Some of us have been looking at that in our home groups Uh, This week as an illustration of what it means to break the second commandment, not to worship idols. Even the detail in this text about adding leaven to the bread for the offering was completely contrary to the law of God. So what was wrong with their religion? Well, again, it was their focus on themselves. They made up their own rules rather than obeying God's word. They had no concept of the terrifying holiness of God. And they thought themselves quite capable of pleasing him on their own terms. Why, if you make up your own religion, you can decide what is sin and what isn't. How convenient and pleasing. Perhaps for a group of senior leaders of a church to say, well, this is sin, but that isn't anymore. A religion was in itself, at its core, a rebellious act against God. If they wanted to worship a golden calf and call it Lord, what was a little detail like the second commandment to them? Surely God should just be grateful for the attention he was being paid. And it was very impressive to a watching world. It fitted right in with the culture 
of the pagan world on every side of Israel's borders. And frankly, although we may wonder why, it was just fun. They loved it. I wonder, though this is beyond our text, if the worship of the golden calf at Bethel was also accompanied by sexual self-indulgence, as the earlier worship of the golden calf had been in the days of Moses and Aaron. It was good enough for Aaron, it's good enough for us. That might explain why they enjoyed it so much. So here we have it. A religion which jettisons God's word in favour of human preferences. A religion which leaves your pride unchallenged. A religion which lets you indulge your desires as you please. A religion which seems quite in tune with the prevailing culture of the surrounding world. Does any of that sound even a tiny bit familiar to you at all? I don't think very much has changed. And before we lift our eyes to the tragic wickedness that is consuming the Church of England, as sadly uh, we will have to do in the coming months, at first, how much work there is for the Lord to do in my heart. It give me a joyful eagerness to hear and submit to his word, to daily break my pride, to learn true and deepening repentance, to have courage to stand with the despised minority and even alone if God's word insists on what our world furiously denies. This is true religion that pleases the Lord. Third, we must turn from self-reliance and return to the Lord himself. Amos makes some staggering claims here, and we need to be careful to hear what he says rightly, especially if things are going well for us in our lives. Because God is God, nothing happens, absolutely nothing happens outside of his control. As Jesus said, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. The Lord is sovereign over all things, the enormous things of world history and the destination of the cosmos to the smallest details of our lives. The Lord is God. And the Israelites knew a part of the Lord's covenant agreement with them meant that when they sinned, he would punish them with disasters like the ones that are detailed in these verses. When the rain stopped and therefore the harvest could not be brought in and therefore hunger followed, well, doubtless the stopping of the rain could be explained scientifically, but behind the science And the going on of the natural processes of this world was the invisible, purposeful hand of God. It rains when he wants it to rain. And it doesn't rain when he doesn't want it to rain. And the purpose of this punishment was to call the people back from the sins that had alienated them from God to renewed repentance and fresh faith. Untreated, the alternative, look down to verse 11, uh, would be for them to share in the fire and brimstone the utter loss to destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God's people have not been listening to his voice in the disasters of their lives. I gave you empty stomachs in every city, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another, yet you have not returned to me. Five times. Repetition enforces the point for all teachers. Five times Amos makes this point. I brought disaster to turn you 
from relying on the imaginary control of your own lives, that you might come back to me, yet you have not returned. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, we do not live under the same covenant which explained their their suffering in such clear terms, but the same principle applies. By no means can we say that any individual disaster is a punishment from the Lord for a particular sin. That is why we must be so careful. But when hardship and illness and crisis come, we learn at those moments in our lives, don't we, just how illusory is that sense of control we can experience when things are going well and life is good and circumstances are rosy. When it all goes wrong, we discover that we are not masters of our own fate. And we may learn for the first time, or in a new way, in that point and at that moment, that there is a Lord who holds in his hand our life and all our ways, all our sins, all our trials, all our griefs. He is still on the throne and he is calling us to turn at that point to him when everything else has failed. How many of us, as part of our own story, will testify that it was when human hope failed that we saw for the first time, or, or more richly, the hope we have in Jesus Christ? How many of us, when our own lives have been out of control, have at that moment come to put them firmly under the control of the only one whose grip never fails, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One or other lords have failed us, especially at once in our own attempt to stand as control of our own lives. And in the end we come and say, Lord, I can't control what comes today. I don't know what the future holds. This has happened. That has gone wrong. That person has betrayed me. That one I loved has been taken from you. To whom shall I turn? And the Lord says, well, there's no one else. Turn to me. And at that point, discover my love and faithfulness. I know these observations can lead to profoundly difficult and sometimes unhelpful questions. Why me? Why that? Why this suffering? Why that person? Why now? Jesus was once told about some poor souls who'd gone on their way to the temple to worship God, good people with honourable intention, and they'd been callously murdered by Pontius Pilate on the way, and the very blood drained from them to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. A hideous account. And Jesus says to those who brought this story to him, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered that way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I'm not saying don't ask questions. But Jesus says to us, in the end, if we can't find the answers to the questions of why, and let's not miss the one thing that God is plainly saying to us, come, repent, put all your trust, all your hope, give all your life to me. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. We may have questions. They may not be answered this side of heaven, but we must have repentance. And in every disaster, the Lord is calling us to return to him, or perhaps to turn to him for the first time. And when we do, we shall find a ready reception 
a full forgiveness, a new beginning, a precious hope, a God more delightful than any self-indulgence, a saviour who puts joy in our hearts as we worship him through our tears in spirit and in truth, a good shepherd who will lead us through the dark twists and turns of the valleys of our lives. Disaster has struck you. Know that there is a God waiting for you to stop pretending you're all right, but instead to turn to him with your whole heart. And if things are well with you today, well, turn to him now before the day of trouble comes and you have to learn the lesson in a harder way. Here in Amos 4, the Lord is saying, uh, as it were, you have been so busy with your self-indulgence and your man-made religion, and all the while I've been busy calling you to trust me again, to discover my faithfulness that will never let you go. In the New Testament, Jesus met a later woman of Samaria. You can read the whole story in John chapter 4. Her life was a ruin, and it was largely her fault. Her religion was defective. She was shunned by her neighbours. But right there in the mess she had made of her life, the Lord called her to return to him. She hasn't come for the righteous, for the people whose lives are well-ordered and everything functions as it should. He comes for sinners, for broken sinners like her, like you, and like me. And Jesus promised her living water that day and promises it to us today. So, friends, will you turn from self-indulgence, turn from self-made religion, turn from self-reliance, and turn to the one who said this, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. (coughs) Are you prepared to meet your God As you take refuge in his son, as you turn to him from whatever circumstance of life you're in today, as you turn from the broken cisterns that Jeremiah spoke of when we sang before this sermon and receive him who is the living water, who will wash away your sins and give you hope that no one can destroy, well then you will be ready, as will I, to meet with our God. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, your word to us today is a hard one. You confront us with the self-centeredness of all of our lives, at home and in the world, and even in our spiritual gatherings. Please would you call us to repentance and to faith. So turn our hearts that we may drink that living water that you promised. And know the forgiveness and new life that only you can bring. We ask it to your Father's glory. Amen.